Potted Market, welcome to our second episode on education. Last episode, we discussed pay and benefits for part-time lecturers, adjuncts, and grad students at Rutgers University, Newark. Today, we take a step back and delve into the educational system before college, elementary, middle, and high school. Newark Public Schools, known sometimes as NPS, is the local authority for public schools in Newark, New Jersey. NPS is administered by the Newark Board of Education, which itself is comprised of nine elected members, each serving staggered two-year terms. The board sets policy for the school district, selects the superintendent who oversees the schools, and performs general oversight functions. This was not always the case. In 1995, the Commissioner of Education for the state of New Jersey, under a state law that authorized state intervention of several school districts, removed control of the district from the Board of Education and put it under the control of the state. The Board of Education still existed, but its role was purely advisory, with no ability to select the superintendent or effectively veto decisions made by the state. This period of state control lasted for 23 years until 2018. An editorial note, your host was a student in Newark public school system for nine years, from kindergarten to eighth grade, and then a high school teacher in it for two years, all of which occurred during this period of state control. After meeting a set of benchmarks in five areas, instruction and program, fiscal, governance, operations, and personnel, power was completely devolved back to the district, and the residents of Newark elected a new Board of Education with actual power. This spring, we had our first election where incumbent members of the newly re-empowered Board of Education ran against a new slate of candidates. One of these new candidates was Adorian Murray Thomas. Adorian ran on a ticket with two other candidates, a ticket that was supported by the mayor of the city. She won that election with the highest vote total of any candidate that ran in the district. Another editorial note, I knew Adorian before uh, she began running. Uh, We both participated in a Newark-based program called the White Foundation. Um, Adorian is here to discuss her role as a member of the Board of Education and her policy goals for her term. So uh, I actually want to turn it over to Adorian first to talk about her own uh, background uh, coming into the Board of Education. Well, thanks, Vinny. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So a little bit about my background just in terms of coming into the board. So as you know, I was born and raised here in Newark. My mother was actually a public school teacher and a social worker for most of my life. And my dad actually immigrated here from a small country called Guyana mm-hmm. when he was just a little younger than I was. And so for me, my whole life has been shaped by so many hardworking adults, particularly in my family, making sacrifices so that I could have the opportunities that I had. And so growing up, I already always kind of knew that I wanted to pay it forward, right? Make sure those sacrifices that were made for me, I was actually doing something about it. Um, it, That didn't really kind of affect me as much until I kind of really started to think about why my life was looking the way it was. And that really was when I was seven years old. And I found out that my dad had actually been killed literally two blocks from Mm -hmm. my house. And so a lot of things changed for me at that time. Um, I started having harder time in school. Uh, You know, I was already kind of really involved in my school and in my church community. They were already involved in my life, but even more so everyone started to step in to make sure that even though this really difficult thing was going on, I'll be able to, you know, still be successful regardless of what happened. And so luckily that did happen. And fast forward, you know, years later, I really tried to make sure that everything that I went through didn't become, you know, that a lot of young people who went through a similar experience, that their opportunities and that their success didn't end 
um, when a challenge, a huge tragedy or challenge in their life happened. Um, and so throughout college, I'll f- fast forward to the White Foundation. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Well, actually, I, I think <laughs> we could delve into that now. Um, yeah. Just like sort of um, it, you are a member of the Board of Education. And let's talk about your education from the beginning, from your preschool days to to today. So obviously a Swarthmore grad um, mm-hmm. for college, but where did uh, where you attended school in Newark? Yeah. Uh, yeah where so was that? I, so I actually, if we go way, way back, my first school, preschool was actually at the Urban League, which is on Central Avenue. I think technically that's the West Ward of Newark. Mm-hmm. And so I went there from, you know, all my preschool ages. Then after that, I went to the Chad School, which is an all black uh, private school. Uh, really kind of, we talk a lot about culturally relevant curriculum and pedagogy today. Uh, that school really kind of epitomized it, right? I grew up really kind of singing the lift every voice and saying literally every day in the African pledge as my kind of daily ritual rather than the pledge of allegiance, interestingly enough. And so I went there from maybe kindergarten, pre no, pre-K to fourth grade. Unfortunately, while I was there in fourth grade, they were actually closing. Mm-hmm. And so my mom was actually scrambling for me to find a school. In fact, actually, up until really like the beginning of August of that next summer, I did not have a school at all. Uh, we were trying to, my mom was trying to get me into Harriet Tubman because at the time that was one of the finest schools in Newark and it was fairly close to our house. But we didn't qualify because we lived maybe like two blocks outside uh-huh. the zone. Um, and so I literally did not have a school. But then we heard about this school that had just opened up and that a lot of parents from Chad were sending their kids to. And it was called Team Academy Charter School. And so we're like, okay, great. So we're going to go there. So my mom sent me there. I went there from fifth through eighth grade. And then in seventh grade, as you know, found out about this thing called the White Foundation. And at first I was like, what is that? Like, is this the White Foundation? Like, yeah. No, W-I-G-H-T. It's like, oh, yes. okay, cool. You don't know how much of my life I've spent <laughs> trying to disclaim so this is even funnier when you actually like identify as a white person and you're like right. i went to the white foundation, to the white foundation. it's yeah. w it's named after the founder russell b white w-i-g-h-t right. and not anything to do with the exactly. color or the race <laughs> who happens to be white yes but is an incredible philanthropist and you know has really invested his resources and 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 just success into the development of newark and newark students and so i went to the white foundation uh for and I was, you know, as you know, kind of duly enrolled in school and then oh, which, white foundation classes. Which boarding school did you end up going to? So, so well, so I was, I'm still on being that right, team. So you're but, the staff but yeah, like, but no, I ended up going to the Northfield Mount Hermon School in Western Massachusetts. Ooh, nice. Yeah. And so I went there for four years, had a great time. Um, and then I went to Swarthmore College in 2012, graduated from there in 2016. I was a special major in educational studies and political science. And and essentially, I wasn't officially a minor in black studies, but I basically was. I just didn't do the papers, but literally every other class I took by junior senior year. And that's a recent graduation. Yeah. Not not to scare our listeners, but the person who won the most votes in the New York uh, school board election is, in fact, 23 years old. Yeah. You're 23, right? I'm 23. Oh, man. I'm not the youngest person elected into the board, but I'm the youngest woman elected into the board. Who's the youngest person? So the youngest person elected was Marquise uh, Lewis. Uh, And so he was elected at 21. Uh, but the youngest person actually who ever served on the board was, of course, Larry Ham or Lawrence Ham. This historic, prolific activist from the city of Newark was appointed onto the board um, in at the age of 17. Um, and this was in the 60s okay. and, and was the, you know, just and it still is remains an incredible uh, leader here in the city of Newark. 
Um, okay, so uh, uh, so you graduate um, about I guess two years ago now. Um, three going on three. three. Okay. Yeah. Um, before we get into um, your role as a board member, can we talk about what you do uh, as as part of your work full time? Yeah. So while I was actually um, in college, this connects a little bit earlier to like kind of my whole background story of really kind of finding my voice and my safe space and my safe space has always been in education and youth empowerment. I mean, part of it could be because I literally grew up with a special education public school teacher and a social worker um, as, you know, my my parent. And, you know, I so I always like I remember specifically going to PTA meetings with my mom as a kid. And, um, you know, sometimes there only being like three or four parents there. Right. But, you know, those parents being extremely dedicated or literally being in the car with my mom at two o'clock in the morning to, you know, help a student who had just got kicked out of a shelter uh, get back back in, in their homes or literally taking some of my own books and my phonics into her school because the public school she taught at didn't have enough textbooks and materials. And so my whole life, I kind of always knew that not just education, but literally creating spaces where young people are empowered to tap into their brilliance was something that I, I just wanted to be a part of. And so while I was in college, I was, you know, as I said, I majored in political science and educational studies. So this is what I was studying content-wise. And I also was doing, literally doing that work in Philadelphia and Chester, organizing work on campus. I was organizing in those communities, um, working with different nonprofits. Ended up starting my own nonprofit that still exists today that I'm going to get into called She Wins Inc. And we're a leadership and mentorship organization for girls in the city of Newark. When I started She Wins, I specifically started it for girls who share my story of being affected by violence. Uh, we've grown to serve girls who come from a variety of backgrounds, but that still remains the core focus, which is really making sure that young women who are affected by trauma actually are empowered to use their stories to transform the issues that most affect their lives and their communities. And um, so She Wins started, we started with 12 girls in the summer of 2015 at the Center of Hope for Girls right across the street from the old Little Bricks mm. on Boyd Street. You know, today we've reached more than 500 girls in the city of Newark through our workshops, our conferences, our programs. Um, and so that work started in college. When I graduated college, I was still doing She Wins, but also started working for another nonprofit. Actually, funny story how this happened. My senior thesis was about the restorative justice work in Newark. Uh -huh. um, and so I had gotten to interview a couple different people from the district at that time. And while I was doing that, I started learning about like, wow, there's some really cool work happening in restorative justice in Newark. I want to be a part of that. And and so I worked my way into applying for a job here in the district um, that at the time actually was kind of a hybrid job. So we were contracted by another organization called that. We were another organization called the Newark Opportunity Youth Network, but we were contracted by the district. So technically I was a district employee for about uh, a little over two and a half years. Um, and I was- where, where did you work out of? Out of the central office? I or? didn't work. Well, I, did, I sometimes actually would work out of there, but I, we had our own office on Bergen Street. Okay. Um, so we were the Newark Opportunity Youth Network. We worked with young people who were either disconnected from school entirely, so they dropped out, young people who are at risk of dropping out of high school, or young people who were on long-term suspension in the district. So they had committed a level four infraction or above, and they oh, were on long-term suspension. I remember this. I, I used to be a, a mention, I mentioned this in the monologue, I was a, um, a high school teacher yeah. at Technology and at Eastside, or a program called Big Picture that was inside Eastside. Oh, Big East Picture, yeah. I was a Big Picture teacher oh, for yeah, a year. Oh, I know Big Picture, yeah. I, 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 okay. want, I want to regroup a lot of my students from that program right. and have them come on this podcast at some point. They're they're amazing. And for I, sure. I think the hard part about being, talking about level four infractions, the hard part as a teacher, and this goes into restorative justice issues, is um, some teachers are obviously very, they, they can very easily 
give out one of those um, and, 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 and get rid of a student. But for me, it was always like, this is not a solution. And I feel like that's probably what you, your, your program was getting at was these, these are not solutions, right? These are, um, you have to take care of the student after that. Right. Right. And, um, and, and then before too, I mean, so one yeah, of the things course. that we would see is that a lot of the behaviors that, you know, manifested themselves in level four infractions were symptoms, right, of bigger problems. Um, Some of them were because of the IEP, right? So if we had students who were BD... Do you mind just explaining an IEP for our listeners? So an IEP is an individualized education plan for our listeners, which is essentially, which is commonly known as special education. Um, But it it really is what it says. It, it, It should be an individualized education plan based off the various social, emotional, and also cognitive uh, learning needs of, of students. Right. So, which, which under federal, state, and local law, and you local have law. to follow. Absolutely, like you're obli- you, you can get into huge trouble for not um, yeah. adhering to the IEP. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, kind of slip through the cracks. Yeah. Um, but it's our job to make sure that people are serving students based off their needs. So there's, there's a challenge in this, right? This whole conversation about IEPs. I don't want to get into the weeds too of much course, about yeah, this, but, but I'll bring it back to the restorative justice. One of the things that we see is that there were some students who were ending up in our spaces because the needs on their IEP weren't being met in their schools. They weren't being met in the classrooms they're in. They weren't being met in those schools. And so they were acting out in part because they didn't have the power they needed or they didn't have the small learning environment that the IEP listed that they needed that, as you just stated, is federally, statewide, and, and locally mandated, but yet there were still um, some some gaps there. So that was on one end. On the other end, too, there were some students who, you know, frankly, were just didn't even need IEPs in general, right? Mm-hmm. Some people were, a lot of young people, especially black and brown students who come from disenfranchised communities, um, were just overdiagnosed, um, were just placed in IPs when they did not actually need that. And in fact, some of these young people really did just need guidance counselors or therapy or, you know, uh, peer-to-peer mentorship groups, a mentor. Mm. And so long story short, we did a lot of that background work and really kind of unpacking, okay, why is our student really here? And what can we do to make sure they don't end up here again? And that's really the power of restorative justice, the power of restorative practices versus highly punitive uh, practices, which is just like, okay, I'm just going to suspend you. No, let's do the background work to see why they're here. How can we make sure that they're uh, more successful long term in the classroom? And are you continuing this work while you're on the uh, the board? So I'm not with the Opportunity Youth Network anymore, uh, but I'm still with them at heart. And actually, you know, I live in Newark. I've lived here my whole life. And so I, I cannot make this up. And all my friends and family know this. There is hardly a single day that goes by where I don't see one of my old students, mm-hmm. one of my old students from the restorative work we did or one of my old students from the reengagement work we did. You know, the reengagement work is really amazing, too, because these are young people who Folks said weren't going to make it, right? They had, they had either already dropped out of high school or they were so credit deficient or so lacking in credits that it was looking like they weren't going to graduate. And we connected them with uh, not only just alternative schools, but different programs, uh, also industry-recognized credentials, right? So getting them connected to uh, schools and programs that would help them get uh, certifications and everything from construction to mechanics to cosmetology. And so we were helping them see just because your path doesn't look like what, you know, so X, Y, and Z said it was going to look like, you still have a path to your future. This is it. And so I still see my kids every day. Um, so even though mm-hmm. I'm not officially there with them, like, you know, you know, as a former teacher, you yep. run into your students all the time. Yeah, I'm friends with them on Facebook still. It's it's amazing <laughs> to see where they are isn't now. It, isn't it something? And like, you just never know how the seeds you planted yeah. still stand today. It's really beautiful. It's oh. one of the most rewarding things about this work. 
Yeah, it's like, it's it's one of those. Uh, God, this sounds so cheesy, but it, like it does bring <laughs> tears to your eye when yeah. you get that Facebook comment. They're like, I, I, you know, or when when they do like a shout out, like when they graduate college, for right, example, right. and they shout you out, and I, I can't do anything but like crumble up and like cry literally, in a corner because I'm like, no, I'm not worthy. <laughs> I've been getting so many texts, and you know, this is the the college signing season, and I've just been getting so yeah. many texts and posts. It's like I'm on my way to college. Like I never forget the first time we did our college tour. Like I mean, it's just yeah. I'm actually so and not to not to um, advertise a future episode. Yeah. But I'm actually really excited for the next episode, which is about students in college. Mm-hmm. And there's a reading assignment if you are listening to this podcast. It's called The Privileged Poor. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about issues in that book. And I'm bringing on college students because Great. the story doesn't end, right? You guys are just one part. NPS is just one part of a journey right. um, where um, there's another... Uh, not every kid goes to college, but there's still sure. education after college, whether mm-hmm. you're going straight into the workforce, to a training school, or to yeah. um, to a four-year or two-year institution, or even after that to grad school. Um, I just started doing this, uh, well, I helped moderate this really great panel at this um, conference, this urban youth conference that happened in Newark a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and my panel was a, a mix, right? I had some people who, and all of them, all of them all super successful. Some of them went to four-year college. Some of them went to like two-year for cosmetology or, you know, some other kind of certification. They're all doing extremely well. They're all from Newark. And yeah, you're right. Everyone has a different kind of pathway. So I think that's going to be a really great yeah. Time. You should also do a, a, a episode with recent college graduates. Well, too. that yes, I would love That'll to. Be really um, we have a couple episodes already planned out, but at some point, um, I want to do an episode about coming back to Newark. Mm. Um, again, not to get too off topic here, but like I think sure. one of the. I mean, it, thank you for coming back, and and, and I think for me, people often ask me this, like, why did you come back to Newark? Because I I still, having grown up here, stick out like a sore thumb. I'm not. I don't reflect what the stereotypes people think of when mm. they think of this city, and. Um, I love this city for that very reason because yeah. th- there is no stereotype. There's a wide variety of people who do live here and work here and and, and exist here. What is your ethnic background? My uh, Portuguese, both Portuguese. sides. Uh, but my dad, my, both my parents are immigrants. My dad moved to New York in the '70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York City itself. We mm-hmm. still have family members living there. My mom moved in the '70s to Rockland County, New York, okay. and in the '80s, my dad uh, bought houses out here and moved out here and. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I completely grew up here and yeah. with the exception of the wife foundation in college, um, Same. those eight years and a stint working in London briefly. Like I, you know, I've pretty much existed in the city my whole life. Right. Um, Same here. and it, it's, I want to do both episodes in the future of people who came back and people who didn't, mm. it was a mutual friend of ours. I won't mention her yet, but I would love to get her back here. Someone who left this city. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, why people leave New York sure, and not coming back? Sure. But um, but you're here, so let's talk yeah. about. You've been sworn in uh, a week and a half now, right? Yeah. Um, you're now an active um, board member, a freshman member at this mm-hmm. point. Um, but uh, let's talk about the role of a board member, both in general, but also your role specifically. So, yeah. what does it mean to be a member of the board of education? Yeah, I mean, so there's sort of two official definitions of being a board member, and so I'll talk about that and then I'll talk a little bit about the other part as well. Um, So the two official uh, definitions of being a board member are to advise um, and authorize and also evaluate uh, the the work of the superintendent, right? And so we are his comrade, we are his companion in the work, but our job is also to evaluate him and to make sure that the work that he's doing is uh, in the best interest of our babies in the district. I think we're really lucky to have a superintendent who, you know, is not only born and raised here, (laughs) was an educator here, uh, but it is just an unapologetic advocate for uh, Newark students. And so it's really 
exciting um, to be working with him and to really be making sure that we also create a context in which um, he's held accountable, but then also that where we're all on um, a very clear kind of path where we know that we are pushing our students forward. This is the plan. We may have to have uncomfortable conversations to get here, but this is what we're going to do. The second part of being a a board member is to set policy, right? So to set the policy uh, that governs what we're doing here in the district. It's important to note that board members um, are not directly running the district, right? We have a staff that does that, but it's our job to set the the policy context that governs the work that they do. Um, you know, the, the best analogy I can think of is like, you're like a company in a weird way um, where Roger Leon, the superintendent is the CEO. CEO and you guys are the, essentially the shareholders or the, well, you represent us, the shareholders, you're the board of yeah. um, directors, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. Um, obviously there's some slight nuance, but right, of course, for yeah. sure. Um, and then of course the other sort of less official, but Actually, I would say just as important role of the board member is to really be the liaison between the community and the district, right? So to really make sure that we oftentimes, you know, that's this, and this is the, the beauty of it being an elected position, is that we were chosen by the people, right? People mm-hmm. voted for us, 4,000, 1,000, however many people voted for yeah. you, and regardless of how the campaign turned out, right? Like, people voted um, for everyone, right? People voted for you know, the, the, and for us, people voted for us to be in this office. And so, you know, what's, what's the powerful part about that is the responsibility that comes with it. And so it's our job to make sure that we're passing policy, that we're setting a tone in the district and on the board that's reflective of the needs, interests, and values of the people um, who, who wanted us in these seats for that reason. Um, and so it's there's a, there's a, a moral, you know, kind of a there's a moral to me responsibility to make sure that you know I'm taking this role very seriously because people entrusted the fate of their children in their community um, in part in my hands and then of course in the remaining eight board members hands um, so yeah so that's the general role of a board yeah. member and um, how about you specifically what what are your plans on the board and what how do you see yourself in there as a Dorian not just you know school board member number nine or whatever number nine, number nine. <laughs> the t- deciding vote yeah um, so I'm an educator at heart right uh, I my what gets me going is literally being able to directly interface with young people in the community and help create spaces where they see that they can thrive. The challenge about being a board member is that as much as there is, you know, direct community involvement that's a part of the role, a lot of it is also really a lot of the work is happening in committee. A lot of the work is happening in executive session. A lot of the work is happening not specifically within the face of the community. Um, And so in terms of some of the work that I'm really passionate about doing, both in terms of the community work and also the policy work, uh, one is curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. Really making sure that our young people have access to curriculum that is engaging, that's stimulating, that's innovative, that meets them where they're yeah. at, right? And well, uh, not to get into the weeds, but is, sure. common, is Common Core still a thing? Like, it's I've been out of it for like four years now. But like, where where is the district? Like, or where? I guess this is more of a state issue because the state yeah. does also have a lot of control over what the standards are. But um, what what standards are we following in terms of curriculum? Yeah, I mean, so obviously Common Core is definitely still a thing. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's interesting, right? When you have both, we're a local entity. Mm-hmm. But to your point, we do have to operate 
within the context of the state, within the context of the federal. So technically, we don't, in terms of like, let's talk about standardized testing, right? Technically, mm-hmm. the park is now the NJSLA. And so there's some slight kind of uh, differences in terms of names. But at the same time, at the end of the day, <laughs> we have a certain standardized test obligation. I'm just and, thinking back, like, when was the GEPA? Do you were you... Hespa, Hespa. No, I, Hespa. Think, I do remember, you remember Hespa. Hespa. Right, I remember Hespa, oh but I never had God. to take the Hespa. Right, neither did I, because right. we ended up doing boarding right. school. But um, Geppa and Espa were the eighth grade and fourth grade mm-hmm. equivalents. I'm just laughing in my head. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was like... Yeah, you're fine. Because I, I remember doing park standards when I was a teacher, and thinking to myself, it's like the Who lyric, you know... Uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? Yeah. It's like it's like the name has changed, but like it's the standardized testing at the end of the day is that, right? right. Like it's just a, a way, a mechanism for... Um, evaluating students whether or not it's the best mechanism i think is a right a, a, a whole separate 10 podcast discussion <laughs> for sure i mean one of the good things is that we're, we're moving to this and then this isn't something that's just happening at the the local level also at the state level uh we're moving to a, a state in which we're not just judging schools and teachers and students by their ability to meet certain standardized tests uh sort of benchmarks right but we're also measuring growth Right. So rather than evaluating a school or student by, okay, did 85 percent of the students reach reach X? We're also saying, hmm, how much did the students uh, academic or test test scores improve over mm-hmm. the course of this year? So really measuring growth rather than just reaching benchmarks. That's a more substantive and also just fair way of assessing uh, academic and um I would say a student's academic achievement and also just judging teachers in schools because it's not fair to teachers either. When you have, you're a teacher and you know I'm sure you have mm-hmm. this experience, you have a young person, say so you're, t- you're teaching eighth, ninth grade, but students are coming in at various reading levels, various math levels. And so just to judge folks just by their ability to reach certain benchmarks in a given year um, can be limiting. Now, if we, obviously there's a purpose for that and there's a need for it, but let's also couple it with a more holistic view of well, academic achievement by I was gonna, looking at growth. Yeah. And I was um, going to ask you about that because like, I understand you know, the importance of benchmarks to you as a board member because that's what you run on and also how you mm-hmm. um, are able to evaluate and, and have a conversation. But my question is, as a also as a board member, how are you going to, I think part of NPS is creating whole humans mm-hmm. and w- how will you evaluate that? What will you be looking for in Newark Public Schools' uh, uh, mission in creating humans and not just, you know, numbers of like 85% achievement on this math benchmark? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, one of the great parts about the program and instruction uh, committee that I'm sitting on and that I'll be, you know, chairing actually this year is making sure that is is the fact that it's actually kind of all encompassing, right? So we're not all encompassing in that it's not solely the curriculum, it's not solely enrollment, but we're also looking at. pedagogy we're also looking looking at climate and culture these other very important um, elements of a school um, and district that contribute to creating whole humans yeah. right um, I know firsthand from the work that I do in my nonprofit she wins that I did with OYN just various other organizations that a child is much more than their park scores they're much more than the SAT. They're much more than even their English and math grades. Even though those things are extremely important, um, their social and emotional learning skills, their self-regulatory skills on how to cope from stress and trauma, um, their ability to to 
soundly and effectively interact with their peers and adults. These are things that make whole students their ability to have, you know to act on their talents, right? Yeah. And so to feel like they're good at something, to have self confidence, self esteem, all these things contribute to creating not only you know whole humans, um, but also really the future of our city. You know, when you look at a city that just demographically, um, and not maybe butchering these numbers, but the ballpark is that. More than a quarter of our city's population is like under the age of like 33 or something like that, right? And to, for most cities our size, we are a very young city, which means that everything that we do to to that that touches young people today is directly affecting our future, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me as a board member, really working directly with fellow board members, um, with administrators and staff to help make sure we're creating schools in which students are getting where students are being able to be educated as a whole child, right? So both their academic, their social and emotional, their leadership, um, their their talents, making sure all those aspects of who they are are being cultivated and developed. And the great thing is that there's a lot of great uh, evidence of this kind of work already happening in the district schools, right? There's a lot of great evidence of these things happening in other districts. The question is, how do we put this at scale? How do we exchange best practices from school to school? Um, what's working here in this part of the city or in this school? How do we make sure we kind of cross-pollinate and have educators um, really kind of interacting with each other and administrators interacting with each other so that we can um, really just do a, a better job of exchanging what works? Another thing on this, too, is and I'd be interested, I have to do more kind of research on how we can uh, do this as a board and really work with my board members and uh, staff to kind of think about ways to do this. But I'd be interested to see if we can start. So, you know, how we give out um, when if when, when, when a parent's come to sign up their kid for uh, Newark One enrolls, right, mm-hmm. to get this book. Oh, so Newark One, Newark One is still a thing? or Essentially, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, just to explain, sorry, I, I feel like none of our listeners will know. So this is the application process the for application getting process. into particular schools. Is it just right. high school or is it expanded further? It's expanded. Uh, it's, okay, it's got all, it. It's all schools. What will be interesting is so it's the, one of the main sort of kind of metrics that I don't know if you remember this in college, mm-hmm. but there was this big book that I had when I was applying to colleges. I think it was like the 365 oh, something. Oh, yes. You know I what I'm talking this. about? Yeah. And so it gave you it gave you like a, a list of like 365 schools. And the one that I had that I love, this is actually one of the first times I heard about Swarthmore, the college I went to. It told you how many students, you know, what percentage of students get jobs after college. Uh, what, but it also gave you these other like holistic things, right? Like what percentage of students are happy in that building? Or what percentage of the students... Um, you know, feel like it's good financial aid. It was this pretty wide spectrum yeah. of essentially measuring a school's uh, success or value. It'd be interesting to see if we could kind of get a more comprehensive metric for Newark for Newark schools, uh, uh, one that encompasses what percent of students are extracurriculars, yeah. what percent of students, you know, again, long shot, but it's something I'd like to think about as it relates to this question. So this is actually, I'm so glad you brought this up because I wasn't yeah. planning on asking about this, but I'm going to throw this out there. And if you don't have any uh, like answer ready, like um, maybe I can ask you afterwards and you can share one, but um, it's related to what you just brought up about college counseling. And we were blessed. Um, I don't think you were in the age of Kevin Hudson at the Y Foundation. I think you're Dan Kramer. Heck yeah, I was. Oh, you were Kevin Hudson. I was both. I had both. both. Okay. And I love them equally. Yeah. So um, it's funny if he's listening. Um, so um, yes. being part of the Y Foundation, and going to boarding school meant that we were doubly blessed. We had not only very good college counselors, but we had two that were essentially not at odds, but like checking each other. So I had my boarding school college counselor, John Rydell, someone still close to my heart, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Kevin Hudson back here in Newark. And I, um, um, I 
didn't have Harvard on my initial list. Mm. And it was because of the intervention of Kevin Hudson that right. Harvard ended up appearing on my list of right. places that it ended up going to. And the reason why I bring this up is I did teach in New York public schools, but I wasn't a college counselor. I did teach for America just mm -hmm. to be fully um, an organization that I still have a lot of friends in, but also have some distance from because of I, I disagree with some of the policies that they've been doing. Um, but I... I only discovered later on that there's actually a college counseling version of this that uh, does exist, and I probably would have done that had I known about it. But I'm wondering, this is a very minor issue, and I understand that all we're not preparing, uh, not all New students will be going to colleges outside of the state. Right. But I'm wondering, what is, is there a conversation going on about improving college counseling in New York? Because I found a lot of my students' needs, particularly ones who were, who had the scores and who had the desire yeah. to go to schools, particularly outside of the state, we're not getting that same attention because uh, guidance counseling in Newark is 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 a, um, they have to take care of everything. They deal with the issues with from IEPs to, um, to dealing with discipline, to dealing with college counseling. And I'm wondering, has there been talk about how do we deal with that issue? Um, or is that something that's just not on the, the board's like, front burners maybe it's a back burner issue at the moment yeah well i definitely wouldn't say it's a back burner issue. well yeah i didn't, I didn't yeah. mean that's a tip no i, mean, I, know, I mean like I it's on the stove still it's, it's just definitely not, on the stove yeah i honestly i would have to do some more research in terms of what the current status is um district-wide uh, on that front but you know and, and 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 personally i know just as i you know begin serving on the pro uh the committee for program and instruction and obviously not even just program instruction, but just as a concerned board member and importantly, just as a com concerned adult um, who works with young people who attend, actually the girls on my organization come represent more than 21 different New York public schools. And so for me, I have a personal vested interest interest in this, both professionally and then also as a board member, I'm definitely going to do some more research into the status of kind of where we are just in terms of our numbers and our outcomes as it relates to college counseling. But what I will say um, just from my personal experience of working within the district and working directly with the mainly, it was mainly I was working with comprehensive high schools um, and a few others too. There's a lot of really like just extremely dedicated folks we have here in our guidance teams. I mean, and not even just guidance teams, honestly across within the whole building. I mean, there's just some really incredible uh, folks Um and so I think we have to think really creatively about how do we create an environment where folks with the best intentions and all this great energy and passion for their kids have even more tools and resources at their disposal to best serve these kids. Um, I mean, part of the challenge is that we have, you know, a lot of guidance counselor who, counselors for every one counselor has hundreds of yeah. kids yeah. on their caseloads, right? So you can be as dedicated and committed as possible, but that is a very difficult job with all those students to serve. And so we we, we definitely have work to do mm -hmm. um, in that area. And I, and I know firsthand from like knowing people who are in guidance and then knowing students who have been recipients of these counselors, those, I know some students who've had ex incredible experiences. And then I know some who've been like, listen, I was one of so many Kids, yeah. there was so much that there was only but so much he or she could do. Um, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. But there's a, a to your point, I think the the talent um, and the passion, and I say this all the time when I'm talking about Newark students, but I think we could say the same about the adults. There's so much talent. Um, it's just about how do we create an environment for that talent to be best cultivated and tapped into. On the flip side, though, when we do have you know 
adults or folks in the schools um, who don't show that same dedication and passion, there needs to be accountability, yeah. right? And because you know we would be lying if we said that everybody, right? Um, and so there's definitely a, a balance that we have to make there. But at the end of the day, we have to make sure we're creating an environment yeah. for success, and that requires a lot of honesty. That requires admitting um, the gaps uh, that we, that currently exist and what we've done wrong in the past, so that we can be uh, moving forward. So uh, this is going to be the worst segue in the world, but we talk about adult <laughs> accountability and oftentimes yeah, yeah. when people think of accountability and, and teaching, the one thing that comes up is charter schools because this is like the, the selling point of a charter yeah. school is that um, they have a much easier way of, um, of uh, creating their own faculty and, and, and not having to adhere mm-hmm. to the same union rules. Um, not going to get into the union issues. That's a whole different <laughs> podcast right there. But um, I'm wondering, what is the relationship for, uh, with the Board of Education to the charter schools that operate in Newark? Yeah, I mean, so technically we don't govern them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have about a quarter of our budget goes to charter schools, right? Because at the end of the day, they are Newark students. Um, and so we have a quarter of our funds that go to them, but we don't govern them. And so there's limitations in kind of what we can do in terms of what's actually working, uh, in terms of... Uh, actual governance of these schools. Uh, one of the things that, you know, that Roger, our superintendent, has been very intentional about making sure, though, is that there is a real uh, kind of, and again, this this is always like a work in progress, right? This is a journey. This is a, a marathon, not a sprint. But making sure that there is better communication and opportunities for cross-collaboration between both sectors. Most charter school students that I know started in a district school yep. <laughs> or vice versa. And so at the end of the day, you know, these kids are coming from the same blocks, the same neighborhoods, the same streets. Um, and so our job is to really make sure that one, we have enough quality Newark public school students, f- n- pr- enough quality Newark public school seats, excuse me, for every single Newark public school student, right? We can't have a, a, a district and where, you know, parents feel like they can only send their kids to two or three schools. Because if we're being honest, right, like if you talk to everyday parents here in the city of Newark, they're like, look, I'm trying to make sure my kid goes to a school that is safe, mm-hmm. that's going to get them to where they need to be, um, and that ideally isn't three miles from our house, right? So we need to have enough seats, quality seats here in the district that can provide that for Newark kids. Um, and until we can say that every single Newark public school seat is a seat that you know, every parent will feel comfortable sending their their kid to. Then we still have we still have some work to do. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm glad you raised this because um, I, I keep thinking of the additional burns there are on on a board member of an urban school district that let's go with to go with this district in random. Let's say Milburn Public Schools, which mm-hmm. is close by and technically has the same authority. Yeah. I, I'm assuming the same authorities and the same um, mission as you guys do. But the additional issues that board members deal with is not just like the sort of minutia of how do we hire the best possible faculty, but you're dealing with these issues you mentioned of restorative justice, of safety, right? Nothing that neuropsychologists are dangerous. That's I'm not implying that at all, but meaning that how do we create a culture where students feel accepted, which is something that like the closest um, I, I think that suburban schools deal with mm-hmm. these issues is maybe in the school shooting context yeah. where they're dealing with this sort of life or death issue. How do how does an urban school district juggle that? Right, like dealing with like the minutia that I'm talking about of like hiring the best teachers, getting the best scores, but also dealing with these additional issues of poverty, of starvation. Right, like we don't talk about students um, starving in school. 
of um, emotional issues that stu students bring in to the classroom um, because of stuff that's going outside of their lives. Where does the board fit in that? Like, how do you, I mean, I, you've talked about restorative justice models, but what else is the, do you think the board could be doing to help with the, to, to help with those issues? Yeah. I mean, so the, there's a couple things to that question. A really great question, by the way. I think part of it comes down to making sure that we have students, parents, community people at the table when we're making uh big decisions that affect the climate culture um, and, and, and curriculum of our, of our schools. Right. Um, and so one of the really great things about um, the new strategic plan that's happening in the district, which is clarity 2020, which is going to be announced in June is that we had a series of, it's a, uh, a series. Well, I wouldn't say what well, uh, basically essentially a, for about this past eight, months or something along that ballpark, a series of roundtables that were taking place where as we kind of laid out the framework for what the strategic plan for the next 10 or so years would look like, we actually had students, we had uh, parents, we had social service providers, a t huge gr uh, various group of, of stakeholders in the community actually using their insight and experience to inform what the strategic plan for the district would look like, right? That's something that has not happened before, to my knowledge, um, within the past uh, 20 or so years uh, since we've had uh, state takeover. Um, and again, if I'm wrong on that, definitely fact check and let me know. But that's really revolutionary. Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't be. Yeah. It shouldn't be revolutionary having the voices of people who's lives and children's lives are being affected by the decisions we make be at the table when just those decisions are being made right so and I, so uh, yeah i would just say just in terms of one big picture and, and if, if we put that as like our key kind of philosophy right that we will and use the voices and experiences of the people we have a duty to serve right if we will put their voices and their experiences at the forefront right as the anchor of the decisions we make and literally invite them to the table to help make these decisions, mm. then we'll be in a better position. You know, the board, we're nine people, right? Um, all of us, uh, in this case, actually, are from the city of Newark and are been working in the community in some way. A lot of us on the board actually have children or mentees, in my case, mentees, nieces, nephews, neighbors, um, all in the district. So there's, a, there's a, a personal vested interest. But even so, with all that said, we still need to have the voices of other people in the community at the table when we make these decisions. And so I don't know. I know that's yeah, really yeah. meta. No. Um, so but I want to keep running with this meta yeah. issue just for to sort of wrap up the, the, this, this discussion. I, I, I do want to talk about like a board is not the only model out there. If we look to New York City, yeah. that's, an, that's a mayor appointed superintendent. And um, I personally um, do struggle with those models. Like mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting to make education just simply a platform as part of a larger election. Um, but we do have a board here, and like many districts across the country, a board that's elected. Board. Yeah. Um, and uh, I do want to ask the tough question about um, turnout is, I mean, it's a substantial, um, I think about 6,000 people voted. I'm getting, I might look, I have to look up the number. It's like, no, it's like 16,000 to 18,000. 18,000 people voted, really? In the election? or Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Let me let me double check. But yeah, I could double check that. But w yeah, yeah. whatever the number is, it's still. I mean, compared to the size of the electorate, still small, a right. small number. And uh, I don't want to criticize Newarkers or you. And I don't sure. want to deleg. I'm not. This is not trying to delegitimize your election. You were elected properly and by the rules. Um, but my question is, you know, how do you create relevancy when 
only X amount of people are showing up to vote for the uh, for the board. What do, what is it that the board can do, um, or why is it important to have elections still and not just make it a system like I don't want to say state control because I think that's not like you can solve local control just do it through right. the mayor and the city council as opposed to a right. separate board. What is the importance of a separate board to okay. you? So first of all, sorry I misspoke. So there were seven thousand forty one. Yeah. Ballots cast. You know what I'm thinking about? I was thinking about, so that night there were three other elections that were happening, three other school I think it was Irvington and Hillside, and the total number for those were around like 18,000. Right. And, and so those 7,000 people matter. I'm yeah, not trying to disqualify them or anything. I'm just saying, what do we do when the electorate is yeah. so large, but only 7,000 of them are showing up to vote on a day yeah. that's very important? Um, what do we do to increase yeah. relevancy? Sure. I mean, so, like I said, I lived in North my entire life. I've actually lived... Fun fact, I live in four out of all five of the wards here. I lived in South, Central, West, um, and North. Yeah, North Ward. Yeah. That's where I grew up. <laughs> I mainly grew up in the South and West, though, I will say that. But all of them are amazing. And I've literally, like, it's funny, even though I've lived in just four out of five, like, my whole life has been shaped by all five. Like, I learned how to yeah. ice skate in the neck. Like, my family lived in the neck. So I was literally everywhere in the city. But what I'll say is... There is not a single ward, there is not a single block, there's not a single school you can go to in the city of Newark where you will not find parents, community people, and children who don't care about their future. You just won't find it. Um, even though we only had a little over 7,000 people voting, there are tens and tens and thousands of people who live in our city who want our city to win and want our kids to win too. And so it's not a question of apathy, Right. I think it's a, a question of how do we effectively convey the importance of the election and of the school board election in general um, to all these people who actually genuinely do care about their kids and care about their city. I think it's a question of messaging. Um, I think it's also a question of strategy, right? And so one of the challenges of the school board election for the most part is that it's fairly compact, right? And that it only happens between a span of really like two to four months. Mm -hmm. Some of those elections where, you know, it's starting like two or three years in advance. Like um, the presidential. Like the presidential <laughs> election, right. With 20 Which people, oh my God. No, moving on. Mm, anyway. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that we need to be really strategic about, A, um, a very intentional uh, get out to vote campaign for not even just a school board, but really just, I think in general, there needs to be a huge get out to vote campaign for, for folks for, to increase the number of registered voters. I mean, when you think about both at the, uh, especially at the federal level, but at the mm. state and local level, just how much is happening and how much people aren't privy to. Um, and part of, part of it is that we need to do a better job of helping people know like how important it is that we vote yeah. now. Um, but let's bring it back to the school board election. And that has to happen before the election starts. Yeah. So we can't just start getting people out to vote when it's time for the school board election. We need to be very intentional about this engagement in advance of that. I think the other thing is, too, is really engaging uh, young people, right? So engaging uh, recent uh, students who just re young people who recently turned 18, that really kind of 18 to 24 uh, kind of demographic. One of the things that I really wanted to be intentional about during my campaign was engaging the millennial and youth vote. So I had a big uh, youth millennial mixer where I had millennials and young professionals. <laughs> Wait, are you post millennial or millennial? I'm millennial. Okay, because you fall. Okay, you fall yeah. on my my side of the line. Thank you. I am. I am technically there. Um, <laughs> right there. I just made it. Yeah. Uh, I think because I think like yeah. Anyway, I'm there. But essentially, like for us, and we talked about this a little bit earlier about one. There's so many people who 
left Newark who are our age, right, who are coming back or who actually in some cases never left, right? So they went to college in Newark or around here and they're still working in Newark and they're our age, they're here, they're invested. How do we get young people who may not have children in the district right now, or even those that do, get them excited and engaged about the election? And then also how do we engage young people right when they're graduating high school and just turning 18 and letting them know, okay, yes, you can like drive now, you can do all these other things, but you can also vote and this is important and here's why. Um, And so being really intentional about that strategy. Nice. Um, so this is definitely a continuing discussion. Um, there'll be definitely more education uh, episodes, not just this month, but in the future. Um, but I want to end this uh, discussion how I end every single discussion on this podcast, which is I would love you to share um, something you're excited about in Newark. It doesn't have to be education yeah. related, but you know that, that is your, um, your bread and butter right there. So feel free to share anything that you're excited about. So there's two things I'm excited about. Um, one is just the future of our city. Uh, I'm really privileged and I say privileged because every day, both through the work that I do with my organization, she wins, uh, but the nature of just like who I am as a person. Um, and then even more so now with the board, I get to engage with just the most incredible uh, folks in our community. And a lot of them are young people. And so I'm so excited about the energy, the innovation, the vibrance um, that is running through the city of Newark, right? I mean, our young people today are faced with a lot of challenges, like any group of young people are. There's a It's a different age, you know, trying to navigate knowing who you are, loving who you are, being confident in who you are, what you become, when with a touch of a finger right you can see someone that that you think mm-hmm. looks better than you that has more money than you yeah. all these things through social media i mean it's i think it's we underestimate how difficult it is to kind of come of age in this particular time um, but every day i get to interact with and meet just some of the most incredible uh, innovative dedicated and resilient people that i've ever met and they're all children or young adults rather and so i'm really excited about where our city is going to go because of their energy. I'm also really excited about um, just the opportunity to get Newarkers and, and and by Newarkers, I'm talking about like folks who, who have lived here their whole lives or from here, their families are from here, etc. And of course, that's not just, those aren't the only Newarkers. I know we've got our transplants. I claim them too. But really getting them as to become beneficiaries of all the development that's happening in the city. You know, there's a, a, a big push for talking to more Newarkers about home ownership, about uh, real estate ownership in general, about, you know, diversifying revenue streams, a lot of things that's trying to, you know, building up, creating a pipeline from from the school to the classroom. I mean, from the classroom to career, some of the work that I did before was not only just on restorative justice, justice, but also working with young people to get certification constructions, mechanic constructions, all these types of things. And so we're, we're creating more pipelines for young people to graduate school, but then also learn, you know, how to get their OSHA licenses so they can help be some of the contractors who are building up these new buildings here downtown or across the city. And so I'm really also excited, not just about the development that's happening in city in the city, but the bridges that are being created between the community and the development so that folks who are from this city, um, who have lived here their whole lives, um, are actually able to benefit from some of the growth here. God, how do I follow that? 
Um, so mine is a little more simple. Yeah. Sorry, I know that <laughs> no, was No, no, it's great. No, lot. you you blew me out of the water. Mine is just simply, I'm right after the recording of this podcast, I'm going to the Newark Public Library's uh, <gasps> annual book sale, which I love. Oh, my God. For a dollar or two dollars. Shut the front door. Yeah, the front door has been shut. Uh, <laughs> they, um, It's literally right after this. I'm going to walk there. Um, Sick. It's, uh, I go there every year. I When I was living in New York City, I would actually take a train out what? on a Saturday morning to go. Um, the only thing that annoys me a little bit, there's these hawks who go there to buy the stuff and resell it on Amazon. So they do grab some of the good stuff. I'm serious. Welcome to the age of God. of gig economy where people like make money off of selling books from book sales. Oh, but so you still find good stuff. And it supports the library. The library uh, will definitely be a future episode. Um, Great. It's growing. It's doing a lot of cool stuff. Its director is uh, one of the most prolific uh, directors of the library yeah, he's I, and great he's great um and i gr- literally grew up in that library yeah same here i didn't know how much i would still be involved as an adult yeah. and a lot of that comes down to the leadership of him and his team i mean i didn't grow up in that particular the uh, the the first avenue branch which r.i.p oh, okay. no longer exists oh. um was like it's now a la casa de, uh oh, pedro oh, so site they're great. yeah th- that's where the old library used to. okay they're, they're, they're small oh, one that's great. next to first avenue school the old yeah. one elliott street well, it's no longer Elliott Street Annex, whatever that is. Yeah. That's that's the old site where I used to go to the library all the time. And going to the main branch was like a big deal for me. That was right. like, you, you know, <laughs> we could get a video there once because it was so hard to return a video living where we were right, um, right. up there. And uh, that was always a special yeah. experience. Now for me, I go there all the time because I live yeah. next to it. Well, no, to your point, though, I actually lived, I lived by the one that's in the South Ward by Beth Israel. Um, uh, and yeah. then I also lived at Hay Street. So actually, my first funny story, my first college acceptance was actually at Hay Street Library during the on-site uh, college acceptance fair that oh. they had there. They have it every year. Wow. Miss um, Wilhelmina Holder and I think Mr. Brown put that together. What but, school yeah. was that? Do you remember? I got into like 10 schools that day. Oh. And yeah. Because like, it was a big fair. Yeah. Yes. It was like, I got into like. A lot of local schools, and then yeah. this one school, this one HBCU from North Carolina, they were giving me all the money. I was like, you know what? Let me <laughs> let me think about this because that's a lot of money. Um, but yeah, no, it was always a big deal when we went to the North Museum. But my mom, I mean the North, North Public I Library, mean, yeah, but she, but she, my mom, she like made it a big thing. Like we would go to. Uh, Newark Museum, the library, we did all oh, that it's, stuff. It's, 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 yeah. Not to go on forever about this, but when you're like 10, it's, <laughs> right. it, it feels big still to this day. But when you're 10, it's like, oh, yeah. wow. Oh, yeah. And we used to do oh, field yeah. trips there. Like we did performances there. Like there's this big reading day in March that right. we did that we went to go perform uh, Ray Bradbury's um, All Sun in a Day, which is an amazing mm. uh, short story. I highly recommend it. Um, and that, that, like we did it in Centennial Hall, and that right. for me is like a very formative experience for me because sure. that's where I started getting into theater, oh. um, which is still close to my heart. Anyway, Newark Public Library, <laughs> their book sale. Um, by the time you hear this podcast, it's over, but next year, please, um, right. please go to it. We could talk forever. I feel oh, like we can. if I have so my grandmother's up here from South Carolina. That's the only reason I have to leave because yeah. she's up here for Mother's Day. Oh, I'm wrapping it up. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me let me. Uh, f- um, so that's it for this episode. Um, as you can tell, uh, I want to thank our guest, um, Adorian. Um, this is Manny Antunes, host and producer of Pod and Market Podcast, editing and sound engineering by By Phrase, uh, podcast logo and design by Robert Conti, additional creative input by Semantica Teis, pod intro and outro music by Dan Myler. If you have a subject you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please email podandmarketgmail.com. I keep getting your requests and thank you for them and I love responding to you guys. Um, or you can contact us through social media. Uh, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, we have a Patreon page. page. Please support us. Um, it's www.patreon.com slash pod and market. And I want to end with a quote from um, The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's great migration by the great Isabel Wilkerson. 
Um, the reason why I'm reading this is partly because it's a great quote, but also I got to meet her about two weeks ago at the um, at um, uh, Rutgers was having this large lecture series um, called the Tanner Lecture, if I remember correctly, um, and they had her come in and talk. And what's funny is I've had books signed by authors and. Um, authors tend to be pretty cool but they also can be divas and i was really afraid that she was going to be one of those where it's just like sign and move on she literally during the signing talked to everyone and i got to talk to her for a good two or three minutes which doesn't sound like a lot but when you're signing 50 books that's a lot of time and um just to talk to her about the structure of her book and tolstoy and i i nerded out don't 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 I can I can hear the eyebrow raises and the the eye rolls um, from the listeners, but talking to her about Tolstoy and the structure of her nonfiction was just an amazing experience. Um, and I'm choosing this quote because I find in nonfiction it's very hard to be evocative. You can be descriptive and beautiful, but to be evocative is a very hard thing because nonfiction can limit you in the way you describe things. Um, but I'm going to read a quote from the beginning or the intro to the from one chapter to another, and it's called "A Thin Light Far Away." In the winter of 1919, when Ida Mae was traveling her father out of the f- to the field, George and Pershing were learning to crawl, and the first wave of migrants were stirring to life. An astronomer made a startling discovery. The astronomer named Edwin Hubble, working out of the University of Chicago, looked through one of the most powerful telescopes of his time. What he saw would eventually co- become the most significant astronomical find of the century, and would come to parallel the awakening of an isolated people in his own country. It would confirm what for generations had been whispered of, but dismissed as impossible. It occurred near the start of a long pilgrimage of Americans, seeking to escape their own harsh known world. Hubble identified a star that was far, far away, and was not the same sun that fed life on Earth. It was another sun, and it would prove for the first time in human history that there were galaxies other than our own, that the universe was much bigger than humans had ever imagined, that there were, in fact, other suns. Thank you.